guys, I'm going to be 100% honest. I've tried to record this intro like 17 times already, and it's just not going very well. This is the the hardest part of the podcast is doing this intro. And once I get going, I don't have a problem. But for whatever reason, I can't seem to nail down an intro that I really like or that feels good or not fake. So uh I don't know. What's going on, everybody? My name is Eric. You're listening to another episode of the SideQuesting Podcast. Thank you so much for spending a little bit of your time this week, whether you listen to the whole thing or just a couple of minutes. Uh, Any time that you spend just listening is is really appreciated by myself and by my co-host, Tom, who unfortunately couldn't be here today, but I'm going to carry on and bang out this episode by myself and as always I hope that wherever or whenever in time and space you are you might be listening I hope that you are having a swell time I hope that life is treating you good I hope that everything is working out the way you want it to and if not don't worry things are going to turn around soon I promise now I hope you guys enjoyed the super extra well not I guess not super extra but the longer weekend that we got Labor Day Monday off thank God that was much needed because Mondays are the worst and we it seems like we never really get a long weekend that ends in a Monday. But for whatever reason, it seems to make the corresponding week much longer. Like this was the longest Tuesday, Wednesday combo I think I've ever experienced in my entire life. I probably say that every year, uh, but it doesn't matter. So we're just going to talk about some random video game stuff today, considering I don't have my co-host, Tom. I'm just going to kind of ramble about some topics that I was thinking about at work the last few days. We weren't even really going to release an episode this week, but I felt bad that we weren't releasing new episodes, I guess. it We'd gone like a week on, week off, week on, week off for our last couple of releases just because Tom and I are both so busy with just life stuff. And that didn't feel very good to me. Um, not that the life stuff didn't feel very good to me, but I just wanted to get out another episode because I love doing these so much. And... Uh, yeah, we're going to get like a random Thursday or Wednesday episode in here. Whenever I decide to drop this, I have no idea when I'll be able to actually edit it. Uh, so a couple of things just before we get started, as always, uh, and I forgot to do this the last couple of episodes. I'd like to give a uh, huge shout out to the guys over at Hyper Potions. If you listen to the episode regularly, uh, you know that they did our well, they didn't do our intro music, but they allowed us to use a snippet of one of their songs, Friends. And that is very familiar to you guys who are being the Sonic franchise, uh, Sonic has used that song a couple times in some of their trailers, and I believe it was even in the new movie. Uh, if I am mistaken, just tweet at me and let me know if I'm wrong. I always love hearing when I'm wrong. So, um, But that is the snippet of the song from our intro song, and they were really awesome to allow us to use that. Uh, great people. Uh, go all their their YouTube page and their song is linked in the description, so definitely go and check them out. They have some really awesome just beats their songs are freaking incredible and they if you reach out to them most likely they will allow you to use their music i know they have some disclaimers in their youtube videos that allow you to use their music for streams or for background music and things like that without fear of being punished or having your channel get copyright strikes against it so really awesome on those guys i would definitely recommend going to check them out give them some love don't tell them I sent you because I don't really think they know who I am. They, it's just a small podcast guy that asks the user music. And I didn't even get a response back from them. It was like from their representation or something. But definitely go check those guys out. Some of the coolest people ever. Super nice, great music. I cannot highly recommend them enough. 
Second housekeeping thing today, and I wanted to bring this up because I was a huge fan of this game when it released. It was last year or two years ago. I think it was probably, yeah, it was definitely two years ago. Uh, so we learned yesterday that one of the developers or the game engineers uh, for God of War, who was responsible for a lot of the physics and the handling of the Leviathan Axe and the the chain blades i forget what they're called the blades of chaos look at me not knowing the, the god of war terms over here uh he pat we found out that he passed away yesterday and that his name was george molly i believe it's pronounced m-a-w-l-e uh i just wanted to bring this up just because you might seem like it's a minor thing but for any of you guys that have played god of war for ps4 man the physics in that game on the Leviathan Axe and the Blades of Chaos are absolutely incredible. It's the Leviathan Axe is so satisfying to swing around. It's got so much weight to it. It feels so good when you hit enemies, when you throw it and recall it back to your hand. Like it just oh, it feels so awesome if the weight feels right. And it's weird to say that, that you can feel weight through a video game controller. But just the weight on the Leviathan Axe when you like throw it and recall it back, it just feels so fucking good. I can't think of how else to describe it. If you've played it, you know. If you know, you know, as the kids would say. I believe the kids say that. I'm not sure. Um, but we're just heartfelt, you know, heartfelt feelings go out to George Molly and his family. Um, definitely a devastating loss in the gaming community. Someone who that's that talented that has such a passion for the craft, um, and I know that the guys over there at Santa Monica will will definitely miss him. Um, George, wherever you are now, if, if the radio waves reach you in heaven or whatever afterlife you're in, man, I hope you're enjoying some well-deserved rest from uh, this journey we call life. So rest in peace, man, and um, gonna turn on some God of War and play tonight for sure uh, in, in your honor because that. Might seem like a relatively minor thing, but man, the Leviathan axes and the just the weapons, the way they handle in God of War is just is so incredible. It's it's such a an amazing feat of game design. Not that I would know what amazing feats of game design are because I've never designed a game or I wouldn't even know how to make a cube move on my screen if I had to, if my life depended on it. So rest in peace, George. You will be missed by everybody in the gaming community. All right, so with that taken care of, let's get on to today's topic. Now, I was thinking about this topic today in the last couple of days at work. Um, I recently had the pleasure of finishing Death's Door on the Xbox last weekend. And for those of you who don't know, uh, if you haven't listened to the episodes before this, I've talked about Death's Door a couple of times on the show. It is a uh, smaller indie game developed by Acid Nerve and Devolver Digital. I think that's the companies. If I'm wrong, just again tweet at me. I love getting the hate tweets. They f they fuel me to go on. Um, it's a isometric top-down Zelda style, like kind of the link style of Link to the Past, um, top-down dungeon crawler, where you assume the character of a crow, and in this world, the crows are the reapers of souls that make the transition from life to death. So, without getting too much into spoilery stuff. Um, the concept of the game is you're sent out on a mission to reap a soul and that's the starting area you reap a soul an older crow comes along and steals that soul from you and gives it as a sacrifice to try and open the door of death or death's door title and what he explains to you is that that soul wasn't powerful enough alone to open death's door 
But since that soul was your contracted soul, you have no way of finishing your contract without opening death's door and retrieving that soul. And what that means is the reaper's age, the crow's reaper's age in that game, as long as their contracts remain open. So it gives them an incentive to uh, complete their contracts quickly. So what this does is it sends you on an adventure to gather three really powerful souls to open death's door and retrieve the soul. And along the way, you discover that not everything in this world is as it seems. Uh, death is the concept of death is very corporatized in this game. You work in an office setting that kind of represents the bureaucracy of death and collecting souls and things like that. And you start to figure out that not everything is as it seems in this corporatized version of death and what happened to the actual death and who are these mysterious people that are running this corporation and what is their relationship to the fabric of the universe. And it gets into some pretty deep and pretty crazy stuff. The reason I'm bringing this up and talking about it, though, is because... I love this game a lot. It's very well designed. The mood is incredible. The music's incredible. The graphics, just the art direction, everything about this game is is amazing. It was a really surprise indie hit for me, and it's definitely one of my top five games this year, just based on like how good it was and the action. And it's very Souls-like in that it can be very difficult, but if you persevere, you will beat this game, and it's a great feeling. The reason I'm bringing this up is because Death Sword is something really unique. So you're tasked with defeating three... Uh, great bosses to, to harness their souls so you can open Death's Door. And not to spoil what any of these bosses are because all the bosses are designed really well and uh, just the character design and everything in this game is fantastic. But what happens when you defeat these bosses, inevitably defeat these bosses, is there's a character in the game called the Gravedigger or the Gravekeeper or something like that. So he's basically like a cemetery keeper and he presides over people's bodies getting buried and stuff like that. So when you defeat a boss in this game, you get a little cutscene afterwards, like immediately after the boss fight's over, after you after you kill this boss and reap their soul, right? The the gravedigger shows up, or the groundskeeper shows up, or whatever his name is, and there's a little like funeral eulogy ceremony for the boss, in which you and the gravedigger are standing there, and the gravedigger talks about the boss a little bit and says, "Oh, in life they did this, and they were misguided, and this and that, the other," and. This concept of having a funeral for a boss character that you just defeated was like really cool to me. I thought that was really awesome. I never really experienced anything like that in a video game before where, you know, a boss is supposed to be a character that opposes your progress and is kind of there as a as a skill check or at narratively important points in the story to kind of, you know, drive home the important points that the story is trying to make. And this boss the bosses do do that in this game but it's just really unique to see at the end kind of like if each boss them getting like a eulogy and a funeral and kind of paying final respects to this boss that you struggled to overcome it's just really touching to me and it caused me to think a little bit more about what each boss fight meant in terms of the story overall and what i was actually doing in this story so as i was thinking about that for a few days i beat this game over the weekend got me to thinking about boss fights in general and you know what were they used for and what are some great boss fights throughout the histories of video games and what truly makes a good boss fight and what are some games that have done some really unique things with boss fights the last couple of years or since the beginning of video game time I guess and this is a huge topic so definitely look for me to get Tom's input when he comes back on the episodes because I know with Tom's vast knowledge, he's going to have a shit ton of awesome bosses to talk about just because of all the games that he knows about. So it kind of got me thinking about that. And it 
I wanted to talk about my favorite bosses on this episode for a little bit and just kind of what I think makes a boss fight good. And again, video games are a subjective art form, right? So what I say isn't necessarily 100% the truth. You can love a boss fight that I hate or I can hate a boss fight that you love or, or whatever because different stories, different gameplay things mean different things to different people. That's one of the things that you've always heard me preach on this show is that some people love things for other reasons, some people hate things for other reasons, but someone's least favorite game might be somebody's most favorite game. So you just don't really know. So I won't do anything. I mean, I'm going to talk about a couple of things that I specifically don't like in boss fights or things surrounding boss fights, but I'm not going to come out and say, oh, oh, I really hate this boss fight or that or the other, because something that I might not think is important to me might be important and struck a nerve with somebody else, because that's what it means to have art to be subjective, you know? Uh, that's why some people don't understand paintings that looks like somebody just threw marbles at a canvas and some people it really resonates with them. I might not understand higher art, but somebody might because it speaks to them emotionally. I don't know. And yes, I am making the argument that video games are in fact art. So shove it. Uh, if you need any example of this uh, going off on a side tangent here, uh, you should go play a game, a smaller game that Ubisoft put out called Child of Light. And Child of Light's a beautiful RPG set in a 2D world that looks almost as if it was hand-painted. Like, you know how Cuphead was hand-drawn animation? Well, this looks like it was hand-painted. Like, this could like literally be a game that Bob Ross painted. It's, it's absolutely beautiful, the way the graphics look. The music is beautiful. The story is beautiful. All the characters speak in rhyme and poetry. So it's just... If there was ever a case of a game that I would make for games as a form of art, I would definitely consider Child of Light. Go check it out. I believe it came out on the Xbox One. I think you can probably find it on the store. I'm not sure if it's... I want to say it might be on Game Pass. Not sure. Definitely go check it out. But anyways, getting back to the topic at hand. I wanted to spend a little bit of time talking about a couple of boss fights that I really like in video games. So the first one I'm going to bring up, and of course, you knew you weren't going to listen to an episode of the Side Questing Podcast without me <laughs> mentioning an RPG or Kingdom Hearts. Um, but one of my personal all-time favorite boss fights is in Kingdom Hearts 2. And it's towards the end of the game when you are in the world that never was. I believe it's called the world that never was. It's essentially the, the home world of Organization 13 and the Nobodies. Technically a world that was never supposed to exist. It's where Xemnas is filling his plan to bring forth Kingdom Hearts, blah, blah, blah. I'm not going to get into the story of that because I could spend 47 hours talking about the story of Kingdom Hearts and how it makes no sense, and I hate it and love it at the same time. But about halfway through that world, you get to you get to one of the areas in the level that you've seen pretty heavily in flashbacks that you've, if you unlock the secret movie from Kingdom Hearts 1, you know it's a, it's a big open area with a skyscraper that has stairs leading up to it, and this is the infamous deep dive you know, fight where uh, Roxas has the black hood on and has two keyblades and fights like a huge wave of Heartless and Riku dives down from the building. Uh, it's a really crazy scene and it's that scene in particular that caused me like after Kingdom Hearts 1 I was like okay this is a cool game but seeing that secret movie I was like oh shit like this is intense. So Sora, Donald, and Goofy arrive at this point. They are ambushed by nobodies. Uh, Donald and Goofy are ambushed by nobodies and as Sora turns to fight there's kind of like a time warp and time kind of slows down and stops. And what happens is a portal opens up and a figure in a the classic organization 13 black cloak steps out. 
uh, summon two Keyblades. You know that this is Roxas if you've played along with the game. And Roxas is Sora's nobody. I'm not even going to try and, and describe what that means. If you don't know what that means listening, um, trust me, we're going to do a super deep dive on Kingdom Hearts one of these days where see i can understand all this stuff if you if you haven't played it um a nobody is essentially a person without a heart and so roxas is sora's nobody because sora stabbed himself and became a heartless in the first game and made roxas so there you go and roxas knows what's going on and throughout the entire game sora doesn't really know who roxas is but we the player know that roxas is related to sora because he's sora's nobody and that kind of makes playing through the game all the more you know emotional because you spend the first couple hours of this game playing as Roxas and then seeing what ends up happening to him and when Sora awakens uh and then everyone you know referring to him as Roxas or saying you know Roxas this that and he's like who's Roxas I don't know who this is and he, he doesn't really know until the end of the game uh or, or much later in the game who Roxas is um but time slows down and what ends up happening is a fight takes place between Sora and Roxas and where it takes place is the arena is the stained glass, you know, familiar stained glass floors in the in the black void that a lot of internal struggles of in the characters of Kingdom Hearts take place. So essentially what that represents is like your mind, like your heart, like your consciousness, like it's an inner battle taking place there. And what's essentially happening is Sora doesn't recognize this, but Roxas is inside of him. And because he's at a place that holds a lot of memorial significance for Roxas, there's a struggle taking place inside of Sora's heart and his mind right now for who should be in control because Roxas is technically a part of him being his nobody. And Sora doesn't realize this. He just thinks it's a fight between, you know, a guy who's ambushed him and he doesn't understand why he has keyblades. And Roxas is asking him, he's like, well, why do they, why, why do they choose you? Why do you get to be in charge? And ask him all these questions. And Sora doesn't really understand. And there's a scene where Roxas is get launched up in the air and he's looking down in the stained glass that's depicted that Sora's standing on has uh, photos of his friends. It has Riku, has Donald Goofy, has Kyrie on it. And he goes, oh, that's why. And this boss fight wasn't actually present in the original like copy release of Kingdom Hearts 2. It was cut. I, it was first introduced in the final mixed Japanese version. And that's the first way I got to experience it. I watched it on YouTube from the Japanese version. And um, in, in the US version, what wasn't the final mix this just played out in a cutscene where Sora and Roxas fought each other really good cutscene it was really well animated for the time I think it was like 2005 or 2006 but the emotional stakes of this scene are significantly heightened by having it be a boss battle and the reason that is is because to this point this is the most difficult boss battle in this game and it does what boss battles are designed to do. It's supposed to test your skill. It's a, it's a test of everything you've learned in, in the game and to see if you've prepared enough up until this point. Because really, if you can't get past this point, the game only gets harder from here. And the last couple hours of this game is just a constant stream of bosses and high-level enemies. So basically, the game's telling you if you can't get past this, then you're not ready for the rest of this game and on higher difficulties this fight is a biatch for sure roxas does not pull any punches he flies around the stage he summons columns of light he shoots beams at you he throws his keyblades at you uh he's super fast super quick and it does everything that a boss fight's supposed to do the reason it heightens it more emotionally is because you're literally in control of now this struggle between these this inner struggle in sora's heart and once the boss fight concludes, you get the rest of the fight. 
And what ultimately ends up happening is Sora gets the upper hand. Well, it looks like Roxas is about to get the upper hand on Sora. He like has him out on the ground. He knocks his Keyblade out of his hand and he pins it to the ground. And with his other Keyblade is like about to like stab him or whatever, or, like put him down. And Sora, with his quick thinking, summons the Keyblade because, you know, that's a thing. And then is able to slice him down. And Roxas walks off. His hood falls down so you can finally see that it is Roxas, but you should know by his voice. Tell Sora, he's like, you make a good other and then disappears. And then the time goes back to normal and they get put back in the outside world and they're not inside Sora's consciousness anymore. And Sora's like ready to go, ready to fight these nobodies that ambush them. But Donald and Goofy are like, hey, like what happened? You just stopped for a second. And the, and the significance of this boss fight really draws, you know, it really hammers home I'm getting a little bit emotional just talking about it just because it's such an amazing fight and an amazing scene afterwards. It really hits home the emotional themes that the game is trying to tell you, right? It's telling you that, you know, bad, unfair things happen to good people sometimes. And Roxas is a, you know, a good person, but ultimately because of his nature, he's part of Sora. And this scene is made all the more emotional because Sora still doesn't understand what's going on. He doesn't know that that was Roxas. He doesn't know that that was a struggle inside of him for basically control, uh, who would get to be in control and who would kind of take a back seat. And that's as a player knowing that, but seeing Sora be kind of oblivious to it was kind of hard because it almost makes you kind of mad because you struggled and fought with Roxas for a certain part of this game and for Sora just kind of be like, oh, I don't really know what that was about. Uh, it's it's frustrating, but it finally kind of hammers home the point that the game's been making the whole time is why the organization members have been calling him Roxas. It's it, it's why in the scene when he left, uh, is it was the Sunset Town, I can't remember the name of it. Um, I don't remember, and I'm bad. It's my favorite game of all time, and I can't remember the one of the fucking basic towns from it. Um, but when he leaves that town, it's why uh, a, a tear involuntarily uh, streaks down his cheek from his eye because the sadness is he's feeling is from Roxas leaving his this town and Roxas leaving, you know, his friends behind. Uh, and it's, you know, it, it finally kind of clarifies why, you know, sometimes throughout the game, he did recall random memories that that Roxas did have. He'd be like, like little things that he knew. And he's like, wait a second. He's like, why do I why do I know that? Um, so yeah, that, that one of my favorite boss fights of all time, just because of, and, and it really kind of hammers all the points that I like to make when talking about boss fights. It's a challenging boss fight that tests your abilities and your skills and your setup so far. Uh, it, it's a really important emotional point in the story. And I think that throughout the years, boss fights have been used to really, really, kind of emphasize when there are big emotional turning points in the story and th this is this is definitely one of them and that's probably my favorite example of boss fights done well is when not only is the boss fight challenging but it is used to kind of say hey this is a major turning point in the game and especially in the midst of emotional turmoil when the game is like starting to make you feel something <laughs> like that's that that's when boss fights like really like truly shine so that's definitely probably my favorite example. And, and there's another one, too, in the Kingdom Hearts series. I think the Kingdom Hearts series in general, uh, for a lot of its flaws and for a lot of things that 
don't really make sense and for how ridiculous the story is. The mini stories that happen in the overall arcs are really good. And the boss fights that are used to convey the story and the emotion are, are incredible in this series. In Dream Drop Distance, there's another boss fight that's really good. It's one of my top, like probably top five boss fights in the, in the entire series. Uh, it's when you go back into Tron's world when they release Tron Legacy. And Sora had had adventures with Tron in Kingdom Hearts 2. They tried to shoehorn that whole level in there. But um, him and Tron had had formed a friendship, like it formed a bond. And when he went back to Tron's world in Dream Drop Distance, uh, someone else had taken over and completely like wiped Tron's memories and turned him into like this aggressive program called Rinsler. And so at the end of Stor- Sora's adventures in Tron's world, you end up having to fight Rinsler, aka Tron. And normally the minor, like the lower tier bosses in this game don't get like their own unique boss music like there's a certain amount of they're like there's three or four main boss themes in every kingdom hearts game that kind of uh you know they use in rotation depending on like what bosses you're fighting and then only certain enemies have like special boss theme music like the final bosses or uh like sephiroth obviously has his his own music because of course he does he's motherfucking sephiroth um, but in this instance uh, the fight against rinsler gets a its own boss theme and this song, uh, I think it's called Rinsler Recompiled. It's on the three on the Dream Drop Distance soundtrack. Um, it's really intense. It's really foreboding, but you can just kind of feel the the emotional tension underneath this song. Is like Sora's like trying to reach out and tell his friend, "Hey, like you don't have to fight." And what ultimately ends up happening is you end up defeating Rinsler, and at the end, before he like he gets dropped into like a pit into like the nothingness, like he he realizes who you are and like reaches out, and then he's gone. Um. And, and that's really that's a really difficult scene because it's like you, you spent your time fighting to reach this person and now they realize it at the end, but it's too late. And, you know, you thought your only recourse to save them was to fight and you did fight and you lost them anyways. Uh, really good stuff. It's just, um, like I said, for all of the flaws and the faults of the Kingdom Hearts series, uh, it's moments like that that keep me coming back to it and make continue to make it really memorable. The same sort of things happened in Kingdom Hearts 1 when Sora's friend Riku turned against him and Sora spends his whole journey looking for his friends Riku and Kairi and when he finally finds them, you know, Riku just puts him down and, you know, hauls him weak and even takes the Keyblade from him at one point and then you, you spend like, you know, you have to fight him two or three times in Hollow Bastion and then you have to, you know, come to terms with the fact that, you know, Ansem stole your friend from you and he's never, you never come back, but of course he does, but you know, that's, that's neither here nor there. Um... So yeah, that's that's where boss fights really do shine is when they can kind of enhance the story that way. And when it, it really kind of solidifies the emotional connection that you're having to that specific story moment. These moments work especially well, like I said, if this happens like right after something really, really intense happens in the story. So those are honestly my kind of favorite examples of when that happens is is moments like that and those are just some really quick ones that i can think of right there now i want to talk a little bit about a couple instances where i don't like that they use boss fights not in kingdom hearts but this is going to be in a different series so boss fights should always be something meaningful it should be they should serve a point right um 
boss fights no one can really identify like where the term like boss fight came from or, or what game was like the really the first game to kind of utilize it um it, it, it kind of goes back i was doing a little bit of research today to old bruce lee movies where he would have to fight like the big boss at the end of the gang or whatever and then it seemed to be popularized during the 1980s with the beat-em-up genre where you'd have the scrolling stages and at the end of every stage you'd have a, a big boss or a super baddie, as it was called back then. And then the, the term boss eventually kind of became the, just the de facto term in, in the industry. So bosses like that serve a purpose. You know, bosses at the end of a stage serve to test your skill and challenge you to see if you've been been you know learning the way you need to play the game. Um, bosses at certain important story points in the game kind of serve to drive home the themes or drive or, or drive forward the plot. So those things, uh, even in Dark Souls, where a lot of the story is derived from the world around you and the items and, and kind of the underlying story that the NPCs tell, uh, the bosses in that game serve to test you. And, and the Dark Souls and the Bloodborne games from From Software, they make a truly brutal example of using these boss fights to great effect because everyone knows how absolutely crushingly hard the boss fights are in Dark Souls, in Bloodborne, in all of those games made by From Software. And even in games now that are starting to seep into the kind of like the indie scene, like I said, like like Death's Door or like Hollow Knight, uh, those boss fights are crushing and a lot of people can't muster the patience or the strength to get past them. But the feeling of when you succeed in those boss fights and overcome that obstacle that's just been kicking your butt for 15, 20, 25 minutes, hours straight, it's one of the best feelings and it's difficult to describe. It's like it's almost like a dopamine hit that goes straight to your brain. It's just like this triumph that, yes, I beat this thing that's been just absolutely destroying me for the last hour. It's one of the greatest feelings. I would recommend anybody like try to find a really hard video game that's designed that way on purpose that's designed well like the souls games and bloodborne and all those are designed well they're not designed unfair like some of the games from the 80s were just to pad out the the, the runtime like the, those boss fights serve a purpose and that, that the type of game they are and a lot of the times in those games too like yes they're crushingly hard but a lot of the mistakes can be tied back to you just making mistakes right it's not the boss being unfair it's just you're making mistakes in the way the bot the way the boss is meant to be fight or fought whatever i don't know uh i'm getting i get excited when i talk about video games if you don't notice this and my words kind of just start to i just vomit words at the the microphone i'm gonna take a quick hit of this coke right here the drink not not the drugs i don't have lines of coke on my desk just doing them while i talk to you guys so some examples where i don't like boss fights uh, and this is the one that's most prevalent to me was a couple years ago, I played Xenoblade Chronicles 2. Xenoblade Chronicles 2 was... It was a good game. It was a weird game. It was very... How do I put this kindly? It was a very Japanese game. Basically, the premise of the game was... Um, in this world, there exist people called drivers. And drivers can link to blades. And what blades are, are... Like physical manifestations of people that are bound to your service and give you a weapon and powers so what this leads to in the game is this kind of like gotcha mobile style unlocking these crystals and summoning these cre these blades into your service and some of them are very scantily clad bustily designed 
anime female characters and it's it's a little bit uncomfortable uh, one of the characters makes a robotic blade called poppy who is modeled after like a french maid it's 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 a very japanese game um some points of it made me feel a little bit uncomfortable but the thing i hate about boss fights in this game is for whatever reason uh, there then there are some good boss fights in, in xenoblade chronicles too and this is, might just be something that drives me nuts in particular, but some of these boss fights don't feel like they mean anything. Uh, especially going back and, pl- and playing through the game again, if you know what happens. For example, early on in the game, you're in a town, and I forget what the name of the town is, and this is just... Eric doesn't know video games, so... Uh, we at the SideQuesting Podcast pride ourselves on our research and not just Eric deciding to come on and vomit words at a microphone for 35 minutes. So this boss fight happens early on when you get to one of the first towns uh, after stuff happens with Rex and you meet Pyra and all this stuff. Uh, You end up fighting one of the drivers of the Empire who's sent after you when they... Because Pyra is what's called the Aegis. She's super important. She's one of the most powerful blades. So obviously the Empire is going to come and investigate. So the Empire sends their most powerful driver with their most powerful blade to find you. Her name is Morag and her blade's name is uh, Bridget, I believe it is. Um, They very clearly... They make a really, 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 really big deal. They tell you multiple times... Oh, Morag is the most powerful driver in the Empire with the most powerful blade. And the Empire is no, like, small thing. Like, they're a very powerful force to be reckoned with. So the most powerful person from the Empire is coming to hunt you. And guess what? You have to fight her, like, only a few hours into the game. Awesome. (laughs) It's great. So, uh, the boss fight itself is actually pretty good. Uh, Morag gives you a good enough challenge with, with her blade. But the thing that drives me absolutely nuts about the fights in Xenoblade Chronicles 2 is that they don't matter because of this one trope that they use a lot in this game. It's the old beat him in the boss fight, lose in the cutscene trope. And this can go one of two ways. It can either be used to good effect or not. And in Xenoblade Chronicles 2, it is definitely not utilized to good effect because the boss fights are challenging and you're putting your heart and soul in motion. Like it's a it's high it's intense moment in this boss fight. It's like, oh fuck, the most powerful person of the Empire has come and hunt us down. Now we have to fight her. Super intense. And you feel really freaking good when you win. Like you're like, yes, I won. This is great. I defeated the most powerful person. Like this is gonna have you know huge stakes in, in, in the story. But what ends up happening is I I'm pretty sure this is how this happens, and I might have to double check, but I seem to remember and I think Video Game Donkey even did a video on it, that you win in the boss fight, but then Morag just, like, overpowers you in the next cutscene. And it's like, okay, so then what really was the point of that? It's not really progressing the story forward. You could have just had her overpower me in a cutscene, not have to make me go through this grueling boss battle with all these emotions, and then just kind of have her overpower me and just use it as kind of, like, to slide the plot along. Um, the emotional stakes in that fight are more from the intensity of knowing you're fighting the most powerful person. And then just to have it in the next screen, it's like, oh yeah, you fought hard, but hey, you you lost anyways. And the game does this several times throughout the game. You fight the main antagonist, Malos, uh, and by extension, Jin, a couple of times in this game, a few times as, as as you chase them or they chase you. And it's always this 
win the boss battle or complete the boss battle, but lose in the cutscene, the preceding cutscene, or, or get beaten, or, or or something like that, or you know, what is the point of having a boss battle that you defeat the enemy in, but then they're not defeated in the cutscene, or at least they they don't retreat in the cutscene. So what is happening to conclude the boss battle is not matching up with what is happening in the preceding cutscene because you feel like you do good and you, you, you know, kick some major ass in the boss fight. But then you, the next cutscene is just like you get uh, like just annihilated and then it proceeds to just move the plot along to some next plot point until you eventually reach the end of the game and, and finally get, you know, the final boss fight and just finally end the game and get the conclusion. I don't I just I don't know what it is about that that bothered me so much it just felt like eventually by the middle of the game I was just like anytime I was going into a boss fight I was like is this really gonna have like any stakes at all and it's not that I don't think that a boss fight doesn't need to have stakes you know you can have good boss fights for no reason especially like super boss fights or hidden boss fights so bosses don't necessarily need to be tied to the story to be good but for a narrative driven game like Xenoblade Chronicles 2, you know, the boss fights are tied to the story and, and are should be major, major turning points. And it's just kind of like anytime you win a boss fight, it just seems like you're just losing or getting shuffled along in the next cutscene. So I just don't think that's a very good way to do that at all. <laughs> it's just it really bothered me. Now, on the flip side of that, there is one example of this that I really do like when you, you know, can when, when a boss fight is kind of like predetermined, right? And not that the boss fights in Xenoblade Chronicles 2 are predetermined, and this might be something s- slightly different, but the way this would have worked better is if they would have taken the Final Fantasy IX approach to it. And I really like how Final Fantasy IX did this fight, these series of fights in particular. And if you've played the game, you already know which fight I'm going to talk about. It's, of course, the, the Beatrix fights. So... Uh, when you arrive at Bermesia, uh, you're finally catching up to Queen Bronn and Kuja, and, and you know they've invaded Bermesia and pretty much wiped out the population. So you jump down to confront them, and waiting for you there is Beatrix. Beatrix is the most powerful knight in the Alexandrian army, and her reputation precedes her. And Freya knows immediately. I think I'm pretty sure it's Freya who recognizes her immediately. She's like, "Don't you know who I am?" And she's like, "You're Beatrix. You've killed a hundred knights single-handedly." So immediately when you jump down and Frey recognizes her, like, you know, the stage is set. You're like, oh, serious mistakes have just been made. (laughs) Us jumping down here to fight Beatrix there. We have made a terrible, terrible mistake. And if you play through the game before, you know that this is an unwinnable boss fight that you cannot possibly defeat Beatrix. You can only hope to survive long enough for her to finish the boss fight with her move stock break which brings you down to one HP and pretty much ends the boss fight and is signifying of you losing that fight. The way, so the way that Xenoblade Chronicles 2 should have did this better is they could have had Morgok actually defeat you and, you know, instead of just beating you in the cutscene, could have had you beat you in the actual boss fight. Because the way this works so well in Final Fantasy IX is you feel humiliated when you get beaten by Beatrix, even though it's a scripted sequence. And what this really does is it serves to drive home the narrative point that Beatrix is like one of the most powerful characters in the land. She single-handedly defeated armies and hundreds of men by herself. 
So, of course, she's going to be able to defeat you. She's a, a seasoned warrior well beyond your skill. So now that only adds to kind of like this hopelessness and you just, this despair you have going against Queen Braun and, and Beatrix is because she's so powerful. How can you possibly defeat somebody that did this to you? And it's, it's, a, it's a cool way of telling a story in the actual mechanics of the game, I think. And guess what? You fight Beatrix two more times. And guess what happens two more times? And Clara, she, again, whoops your ass, <laughs> leaves you with one HP, and then pieces out. And <laughs> the, the whole city gets destroyed by, by one of the summons that Queen Bronn has stolen from Garnet. And then when you go back to Alexandria Castle to rescue Garnet, Beatrix beats you again. So it just serves to drive home this narrative point that she really is better than you. And going against her is... It's just futile, but you keep doing it anyways because that's, you know, one of the themes of Final Fantasy IX is, you know, perseverance in the face of long odds, which is probably a theme of a lot of Final Fantasies. So um, no matter what, they're not going to let Beatrix stop them. They're going to keep fighting. They're going to keep trying to beat her no matter what. And I just really like the way that was done better. I can't necessarily put into words why I like the way it was done better. I just think that from a story perspective, it really ties in with what was established about Beatrix right away is that she is a badass and she's not to be messed with. And eventually it makes her story arc when she kind of turns and realizes that she's done wrong and, you know, she needs to right her wrongs and help save Garnet and basically turn against her queen and her nation that she served for so long. It really makes that whole arc for her much more compelling because you've had these moments in here where it's just like she's an unstoppable force of nature and you can't beat her. And then you go from not being able to beat her to having her on your side while you escape and eventually defending Alexandria with her. And she's just such a force of nature, at least in that first instance when you get her, when you're trying to escape Alexandria. Uh, she seems to be a little bit weaker in the section of the game where you have to defend Alexandria from the attacking mist monsters. But... I just think the way that they went about that, and yeah, it might be frustrating, you might think it's stupid to have to lose to Beatrix three times in a row and it's scripted, but I really think that does something narratively to the story to kind of really hammer it home and really make you feel like what you're struggling against is just, you know, this this force of nature, these long odds that you can't defeat, you can't overcome. Sorry, I hear my dog Milo in the background chewing on things. I'm going to go make sure that he's not destroying anything really quickly. Okay, yes, we have returned. Apologies. My fiance also called me while I was checking on Milo. So <laughs> apologies for that. So um, I was going to say before we left off with that, um, yeah, the Beatrix fight, Final Fantasy IX. Another fight that I really like that does that, and maybe this is going to be fights, like weird boss fights. I talked about two of them that I really liked, and closing in on 50 minutes and I haven't talked about nearly all of them that I want to talk about but uh, another one that I really like does, that does something narratively is um, one of my favorite games on the Super Nintendo Mega Man X so uh, Mega Man X is a brilliant game it's brilliant in its design it's brilliant in its direction it's brilliant in its being a sequel to the original Mega Man franchise and one of the moments that sticks out the most with me is in that first intro stage when you're running along the highway and you eventually get to the end and Vile drops out of the giant airship to, to fight you and he pretty much just wrecks your shit <laughs> and just uh, just completely, you know, this is an unwinnable fight again. It's, it's very much in the similar vein of, of the Beatrix fights. 
wrecks your stuff, grabs you, and just basically calls you weak. Calls you like a like a little like a little biatch and says, you know, you're weak. You're you're nothing. You're never you you couldn't hope to possibly defeat us. And then another one of the coolest scenes is Zero just comes along and like blows his arm off and like shows up his freaking Super Saiyan hair blowing in the wind and just pretty much makes him run away. He's like, oh, I got like I gotta go, bye, and just runs. Then Zero turns to you, and you're, you're feeling pretty mopey. You're like, uh, yes, I wasn't powerful enough to stop him. Like, I'm not powerful enough to help you. And Zero goes, yo, X, like, chillax, man. Like, you're not as powerful. You're not as powerful as me yet, but, like, you can become as powerful as me. Like, you will become as powerful as me. And then that's, like, when the rest of the game starts up. So the fight with Vile, that it's unwinnable actually does some really awesome things narratively for Mega Man X. First of all, it sets up the main game's main theme. Theming, essentially, which is all about becoming more powerful to be able to take on the end of... It, it sets the game's goal, which is to become as powerful as Zero. Pretty powerful goal, pretty powerful motivator. I want to be as cool as Zero, for sure. But the way that the boss is introduced initially, so if you think back to that first intro level along the highway, you have a couple of mini bosses along the way, which are these bees, right? These these flying mechanical bees that you shoot and you blast and then you eventually blow them up and they drop down, they drop down sections of the highway. So, and, and these are points that were made very well in, um, if you've ever watched Aaron Hansen's own YouTube channel, Eagle Raptor, he does a, a episode of Sequelitis on Mega Man X. And this is something that I wouldn't normally think about, but now that I do think about it, it's one of my favorite things of all time. So these these bees don't have health bars, right? You just shoot them until they die. So when Vile shows up, he doesn't have a health bar either, except, well, now you know, but all the other robot masters in the game actually have health bars, and eventually Vile does have a health bar at the end when you fight him. But if this is your first time playing the game, like, you don't know that. You don't know if this game works the same way as other Mega Mans. You don't know if these enemies will have health bars, so, and he's just like everything that you like know about Mega Man and like learned up to this point, like is just working and you, you feel helpless and you feel weak. And that really drives that helplessness point home is like you can't defeat this guy and you're not sure if you're able, you're supposed to be able to because the bigger enemies before, like the bees, didn't have health bars and you can't tell if you're actually even visibly damaging him. And so that just makes that moment when he captures you and, you know, grabs you all the more you know emotional because you feel weak you feel helpless you feel defeated and then when zero comes along and blows the guy's arm off and frees you and tells you you can become as powerful as me and you 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 can become more powerful that's like super motivating it gets you pumped you're like yes let's go let's play the rest of this game let's get more powerful and that's really what Mega Man X is all about is becoming more powerful so you can defeat Vile so you can defeat Sigma and the way that the game establishes that is through a really awesome, unwinnable boss fight that, you know, looking back now might not seem like anything. I just seem like, oh, OK, intro to the game, whatever. But like it creates a really powerful, motivating force for you to play the rest of this game and get stronger and eventually just be able to trash Vile at the end of the game and get revenge on him. And that is one of the best feelings out of any game I've ever played ever. It's, it's so absolutely incredible. So those are two instances where scripted boss fights like that could have worked. I don't really enjoy, like I said, just to kind of wrap it all up, I don't really enjoy how they did it in 
Xenoblade Chronicles 2, where it was just like they had you win this boss fight and then just losing the cutscene every time. They could have chosen strategically scripted boss fights in there to kind of drive home the points they were trying to make in the story. And I'm not saying scripted boss fights should be used all the time. You should always have that... Most of the boss fights, you should always have that chance of winning or losing when you go into it. Um, scripted boss fights should only be used rarely to prove a point and kind of enhance the narrative in a way that it couldn't have been enhanced otherwise. Um, another example in Final Fantasy IX is a scripted boss fight when Kuja kills Garland at the end of it, and that's just kind of really drives home the point that Kuja just overthrew this dude he's been trying to overthrow for forever. So just kind of, that was kind of my thoughts. That's kind of the stuff I started thinking about with Death's Door and just this unique take on it, one of the most unique takes on bosses I've ever seen in the game where you actually have like a little eulogy afterwards for, for defeating these bosses. And my thoughts just kind of spiraled from there into just this kind of collective stream of consciousness you've heard me shout at you for the last 50 minutes or so. And I hope it just causes you to think about uh, some boss fights and just their purpose and what they do just cause you to think about games a little bit deeper than you normally do, you know? Just think about the themes and what is boss fight actually trying to accomplish? Because that that's what I was trying to do, and that's what I've tried to do ever since, you know, Death Door just kind of reminded me of it, and ever since, you, you know, just kind of becoming older, more mature person and thinking about video games in a, in a little bit different way instead of just something I have to plow through, and it's just a challenge setting me to, like, pad the, pad the game time, pad the, pad the play time, essentially. So, um... One other person I will mention before I do some last-minute wrap-up stuff is uh, one of my favorite villains of all time. Maybe not necessarily the best boss fights, since most boss fights in Mario, spoiler, are relatively easy. They're not super difficult, unless you're playing Mario RPG, I guess, maybe. I love my boy Bowser. I gotta give mad props to Bowser, and I can't take credit for this take and I didn't think of this on my own I wish I could remember where I saw it I don't know if it was on Twitter and I saw somebody or, or and I'm really sorry if you listen to this I'm not meaning to steal your point but somebody I don't know if they were arguing the point or trying to make the point that in the Super Mario Bros games or in Mario's like mainline games you know like 64 Sunshine World 3 um what in whatever games he shows up Bowser is actually really the one that's upping the gameplay value of these games, right? And let me kind of explain what that means. So Mario, for all intents and purposes, pretty much does the same thing for most of his games. You know, he he can punch and kick, he jumps, he does crazy acrobatic stuff. Like, he, you know, his, his set doesn't really change that much, except for, like, you know, in Sunshine, he has the Flood, or, you know, he has Cappy in Odyssey, or... Just other or just you know different things like that, but it's really Bowser and Bowser shenanigans that are causing these Mario games to escalate in level, you know. Um, in in Super Mario World, just you know Bowser just kidnaps Princess, you go to his castle and, and take her back. Uh, in Super Mario sixty four, Bowser takes over Peach's entire castle, and you have to free the castle from his grasp. In Super Mario Sunshine, Bowser Jr. masquerades as you and, and pollutes an entire island and you end up having to fight Bowser at the end. Uh, in Mario Galaxy, Bowser wants to make his like entire galaxy, like, remake the galaxy <laughs> in like his image, like basically become God. Uh, in Odyssey, 
Bowser kidnaps Peach to marry her and leads you on a worldwide adventure. So really, Bowser's antics every game are really upping the intensity of Mario's adventures. Like Mario's just doing the same thing he always does. He's running, he's jumping, he's, he's doing that stuff. It's really Bowser who's the catalyst for all these crazy adventures that Mario goes on. So <laughs> Mario's just doing what he always does. Bowser's the one coming up with these crazy ideas. It's like polluting the island or making my own galaxy or, you know, kidnapping Peach to marry me and taking her all the way across the world. That is really the catalyst for all of Mario's adventures. If it wasn't for Bowser, Mario would just be chilling back, plumbing the tubes of Mushroom Kingdom. He wouldn't be doing nothing. He'd just be chilling with Luigi. So sometimes it is the boss that makes the game. And we definitely owe Bowser some appreciation for all the wacky stuff he's done over the years to kind of keep things interesting, for sure. It's kind of just my closing thoughts on, on Bowser there. Just think about that a little bit. Now, before we go, one of the things that I did over the past couple days when I was thinking about this, and I knew I wanted this to be the, the theme of the episode, is I asked a question on Instagram to some people. I said, what are some of your favorite slash memorable boss fights? And... I wanted to get some feedback from followers or random people on the internet. Um, most of these were followers, I believe so. So uh, I will name them in the order that they came in and shout out the people that I know that they came from here. So uh, first we have Keith from the Main Quest podcast who uh, responded in with probably the top boss of all time not meaning that in a good way but probably this the most terrible boss of all time um hitler from bionic commando uh certainly a memorable boss from that game if you haven't listened to keith's episode um with his brother episode 20 on bionic commando it, it's really good um surprise hitler shows up there um really something that a lot of people didn't see coming and who better to be the ultimate main villain who really is the main villain except you know it, it's definitely hitler uh we had a response from brian and ryan of the listoff podcast they responded the storm king from demon souls and hyperion from returnal are epic uh i've seen demon souls and returnal played i have not played had the pleasure of playing either of them but yes and this is a perfect example of what i was talking about earlier with the with the souls games and the souls born games those bosses are designed to test you and be epic and be awesome and have this conquering feeling when you overcome them same thing with what i've seen from returnal that being a roguelite and being a bullet hell shooter um that game is incredibly challenging as well and just having seen some of the the gifts and screenshots of people playing this game i can only imagine that hyperion elicits the same kind of response it's a gatekeeper there meant to test you in probably the cruelest way possible and keep you from the rest of the game until you get good and i imagine getting past that you can't be much better feeling um guys over at the tepid take wrote in chernabog and some world of chaos the whole final boss sequence in kingdom hearts i have to agree with this 100 percent um you spend the whole game building up to this mysterious person in the background that's pulling the strings right and it turns out to be ansem the wise who and who ultimately took control of your friend Riku's body. So to have this end sequence of Kingdom Hearts that probably takes maybe about an hour if you're fighting all the bosses in a row, unless you're overpowered, but the first time probably committing about an hour to all these boss fights and multiple boss fights in the, in that world that never was there, or, or the world's end or whatever that's called. It's pretty much the destroyed ruins of Destiny Islands. Um, that whole sequence is, is, is ridiculous in the way that game ends. And all the Kingdom Hearts games are 
known really well for that is just kind of having this ridiculous end boss sequence where you're fighting like several different forms of the boss in like kind of like a marathon run. So definitely, that's definitely a good one. Um, Level Playing Field podcast, they wrote in Ganondorf and Wind Waker. This is great because, again, like uh, like Bowser, Ganondorf is the main protagonist for Legend of Zelda. And I don't know what it is about his Wind Waker version. It's just his design or that boss fight. Uh, one of the coolest iterations of Ganondorf. I think it's probably just really because the, the cell shading graphics on Wind Waker look so good. So th- another, definitely another great one. Infinite Ammo Gaming on Instagram wrote in Ornstein and Smog from Dark Souls. And like I said, I so I've actually played Dark Souls. I've one of the few Souls games I actually have played. Um, this duo of bosses in particular uh, is notorious for just being absolutely difficult because when you defeat one, the other gets more powerful. And they're just there's two of them and they're big and they have wide reaching attacks and they're powerful and they can just wreck you so quick. Um, definitely a good one. Um, Console Kids podcast wrote in taking on Abby and Last of Us 2. She was a beast. So if you've known listening to the show, I have not played Last of Us 2 yet. Uh, I've unfortunately had it spoiled. Um, so I know what happens, but I definitely think this is worthy of inclusion on memorable boss fights because not only did this create a lot of stir and controversy when it came out, which I think is good. It's also a high emotional like peak in the story when this happens. So I don't think there's really any better example you could ask for than that. Uh, top three podcasts in their standard top three format. Thank you guys so much for writing in. Give us the top three. So you have Unalaska in Final Fantasy X, Fume Knight in Dark Souls 2, and Orphan of Kos in Bloodborne. Now, if there's three things I know, and I don't know, I haven't played all these games. I haven't played Dark Souls 2, and I have not played Bloodborne. But again, I watch a lot of streams, and I've seen a lot of things played. Um... I have played Final Fantasy X. Unalesca can be pretty challenging. Um, Fume Knight in Dark Souls 2 I know has the reputation of being one of the most difficult bosses, as does Orphan of Cause and Bloodborne. And I believe that was on the Bloodborne DLC that Orphan of Cause was included because I know he can be he can be a real dick sometimes. Um, so yeah, in that case, those are three really strong... Bo- that's, that's a great top three, honestly. I don't know if you could ask for much better top three than that uh and i know that the fight with unaleska in final fantasy 10 is a is again a really strong emotional point in the story where you kind of find out more information is towards the end of your journey so it's, it's getting down to the nitty-gritty uh, and then finally uh we have uh we have underpowered who wrote in the hidden true final boss in octopath traveler well done with a nod to final fantasy 6 so if you've listened to the show before, you know that I have been on like a year and a half long quest to finish Octopath Traveler. I've been playing it in the meantime, just kind of in between other games that I've been playing, and I'm really close to the end. So I didn't, I haven't looked up anything about this game, and I've avoided talking about this. And I didn't look up this when he said this. Uh, I really appreciate that he did, and it's kind of funny that he did because I, I'm close to the end of the game right now. But when I do, I'll certainly fall back on this. Uh, I, I'm the fact that it has a nod to Final Fantasy VI in there too really excited to experience that that this is something that i wanted to experience for myself that i have haven't looked up because i've been i've dedicated so much time to this game to try and finish it um but thank you guys so much for writing in uh i've personally listened to all of these podcasts that i've written in i've also uh i also follow infinite ammo gaming uh he posts some really really great um or she i'm not sure i'm sorry they 
posts some really, really awesome gaming related content on Instagram, really good stuff. So thank you guys so much for your uh, responses. I really appreciate it. And I might start doing more responses like that because it's cool to get some community insight into what, uh, what, you know, what you guys are thinking or if maybe my thoughts are completely wrong. I don't know. So that is going to do it for today's episode. We will not be doing our new fan favorite segment, Pokedex, please, because I want to save that for Tom. It is Tom's turn, and he should have the next Pokemon for that segment. So if you want to get a hold of me personally, you can find me on Twitter at the one true sire. The podcast is also on Twitter at PodSideQuest. You can also find us on Instagram. And Instagram is where I do most of my shout-outs and communicating with people. I believe it is just the side quest or side questing podcast, I believe, is what you can do. Shoot me a message. Say, hey, uh, just if you listen to the episode, just say, hey, I listened to the episode. It was good. It was bad. I thought this. I thought that. I'm more than happy to take criticism. I'm not the best podcaster. I know sometimes I tend to ramble and just string words together. I just get really excited when I talk. It's something I'm trying to work on to be more articulate, to slow my brain down. Um, and then I, you, our podcast is available wherever podcasts are found. Spotify is the main one that I use just because I pay for a subscription for it. Where we can be found on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, TuneIn, Amazon Music, Pandora, most of the big ones. And if we are not on your preferred platform of choice, just send me a message and I will get the podcast up there ASAP because I want you to be listening where you want to listen. I want you to be comfortable using your preferred platform of choice. So that is going to do it for today's episode. Hopefully the next episode, Tom and I will be back together. Maybe we'll do a little just fun like continuation of this episode and I can ask Tom about some of his thoughts on some of these bosses. We will be doing a filler arc wrap-up episode of My Hero Academia Season 1. Just to give you guys a little heads up about how that's going to work from now on, instead of doing... We originally talked about, you know, Filler Arc Season 1 was going to be us doing all of My Hero Academia. There are five seasons. It takes us long enough to put out the Filler Arc episodes in between because we have to be together to do those, and this is primarily a gaming podcast. So we're going to jump around to different seasons of anime just to kind of... to you know keep it fresh. We'll come back to My Hero Academia for sure, but we're going to keep Season 1 of Filler Arc to exclusive to season one of my hero academia and what we wanted to do to kind of wrap up season one since the last episode was kind of rushed we're going to do a season finale episode where we kind of just wrap up the whole season talk about what we like what we don't like the themes and that sort of thing so you can definitely look forward to that in the next couple weeks and as far as that goes we're just going to try and get episodes out more regularly so thank you guys so much for listening i really appreciate it as i always say any time that you choose to spend with us is, is an absolute blessing. So thank you guys so much. Look forward to seeing you on the internet. Take it easy and take care of yourselves.